didn't see it coming. The podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. Happiness. Happiness, happiness, happiness. Happiness is what I, as an advertiser, have been trained to sell to people. If you buy my product, you'll be happy. If you get the product, as soon as you get the product, you're unhappy because I want to sell you the next iteration of the product, which will make you happy. So happiness is a core concept to building brands and getting consumers to believe that purchase will make them happy. It's been what we've been trained as advertisers to manipulate. But happiness isn't working. Happiness isn't working. We're seeing a profound shift in consumers where they're rejecting brands and saying, you know what, I don't believe you anymore. And you know what, if we're damaging our brands, it's because we've done it to ourselves. We've tried to lead people along for too long. So what can a future-proof brand do to bring happiness back into people's lives? Or is it even possible? This is a sort of a topic that just Yeah, I love to go through again and again and talk to a whole bunch of people about. But I want to bring an expert aboard to chat about the changing face of happiness and what it means to future-proof brands. So I called my trusted friend and sidekick, John Marshall Roberts, a behavioral psychologist. And by the way, this is, uh, I just got this piece of news. John actually is being used uh, at Coca-Cola. His research is being used at Coca-Cola, the biggest brand in the world, and they are switching more to an activist brand, doing exactly what I just talked about, trying to find a way to make people happy or restore a new type of happy. And they're using John's research uh, actually to trigger that. So John does know what he's talking about when it comes to happiness and, uh, and, and how it affects people and how it should affect brands. So, John, congratulations on that bit of news with Coca-Cola. Oh, well, th- thanks, Mark. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's insider stuff, so don't let anybody know. Okay? No, I'm not. No, nobody, nobody's going to hear. Don't worry. I haven't pressed record yet. No, yeah, it's all good. It's all unofficial. Okay. It's all <laughs> John, John <laughs> you, you, I love talking to you because you are an expert in the human mind. In fact, you're, uh, you're digging into a whole deeper area that you and I are exploring together called the voice code and how we manage to lock ourselves into certain ways of thinking. You're, you're actually you're bringing a book out right now called The Voice Code, right? Right. It's coming soon. Coming soon. All right. Well, we'll go, on, we'll go into that a little bit later, but let's dig into the main topic right now, happiness. What the heck is happiness anyway? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly all seem to want it, but uh, it hasn't really been well-defined. And, uh, you know, The Voice Code, the book that I'm... I'm uh, releasing really offers a new perspective that, in some sense, is, is highly scientific common sense. And, uh, you know, it's an equation. Uh, we discovered it was an equation looking at the evolution of how people think. We, d- we, d- we kind of decoded uh, the, the basic structure of the human mind, believe it or not, and how our unconscious mind uh, frames our perception. 
Um, and you mentioned Coke before. Uh, basically, what I the word I got from Coke was that they actually were using some of this worldview research that, mm-hmm. that I wrote about in my first book uh, to justify, you know, shifting their brand strategy. Uh, and that's really, you know, how that link got in there. But basically, these worldviews are really a well-established frame of reference. And uh, the voice code is a, is a powerful discovery, which has finally helped us maybe shed light on a lot of different topics, happiness being uh, one of them. Here's my simple take on what happiness is through this voice code lens. Um, it's just our natural state. Happiness is our natural state when we're really being ourselves. Right. <laughs> How's that for simple? Well, that's a really and, simple. I mean, no. you, but you look at anthropologists, you know, and anthropologists, the first rule is don't mess with the native culture. Go in, study, but don't stick anything in because you don't want to upset their natural state. And I wonder if, you know, consumerism or, or companies going in and, and trying to sell people stuff, it upsets their natural happiness. It, it forces them into unhappiness. Okay, so from uh, in capitalism, we had this great, you know, idea, which was like if we could get people to associate happiness with the consumption of goods, right? Then yeah. they'll spend money to and start chasing after it, right? And they'll want more and more, and then we, we'll make money, and then we'll be happy because we have money. Right. right. Of course. Now that that mindset is us chasing happiness in the same way uh, through through trying to sell stuff so that we can have money and believing that it exists outside of ourselves. The whole scenario is flawed, but it is very common. And according to our research, it is a natural stage of growth that we go through in route, you know, to uh, true happiness. We go through the stage of learning to seek outside ourselves for that which is only within us. Right. It, it's part of the, the the natural evolution of the human mind, according to our framework. But it reminds me of this awesome parable uh, of the musk deer that I read or heard of back when I was in college. Basically, and I don't know if it's true, but I'll say that it is true. There's a deer called the musk deer, and I believe that's in India. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every every mating season, it gives off a scent, right? And that's why they call it the musk deer. And, of course, we don't like the smell, but other musk deer just love that smell. So whenever it's that time of year, you know, uh, they, they go off and they, they smell that scent and they go running and they find their mate, right? right. But X number of these deer... Uh, what happens is they end up, you know, going into the, you know, going over a cliff or getting caught up in the underbrush uh, because they're chasing, chasing. They they get the scent, they're chasing after it, but uh, what they don't realize is that it's their own smell, right? They're chasing after their own scent, and so they just end up, you know, going off a cliff because they can't find what they're looking for because it's inside of them. <laughs> oh and I God. think that you know, that's kind of what goes on uh, when we start when we get into this consumerist model of happiness is we we follow our own scent right off the cliff. Um, but eventually, if we don't break a leg or whatever, you know, we, 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 we stop chasing and we find out that it was within us all along. And I think that for brands today, that's the whole message is to uh, try to help people uh, discover uh, their voice, find their voice and recognize that they already are happy. Right. And, and kind of get back to get back to the center. Right. To help people remember who they are underneath all the chasing and all the schemes to try to find outside what they'll never find. Now, and, and, and so I think that's where we're at today. Now, hold on, though. But you said that this is a natural course of evolution, that we as humans go through a course where we start to seek outside for things that are already inside us. Is this this is a natural thing that we're going through? It is part of the natural process. So I try not to tell, you know, get all geeked out on the research. But basically, we found that there are 12 stages of 
for, for lack of a better word, consciousness, 12 worldviews that start in the womb and they end stage 12 would be, you know, the, the masters, uh, uh, you know, from who founded great religions, you know, Buddha, Jesus, you know, <laughs> like these, uh, you know, these characters. So that we're all, most of us, you know, somewhere in between uh, the, the top and the bottom rung of this sort of 12 step ladder. Uh, but it's an interesting ladder because what happens is um, the first six steps are kind of like going up a mountain. Mm-hmm. And that's where we, we turn from, from an innocent, happy baby, right, to, um, to a full-grown adult who's completely bought into our ego as who we are, you know, our, our, our self-concept, right? We become one. Who are you? You know, I'm a brand strategist, uh, mm-hmm. a father of three, and I have a Lexus or something, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we grow to see ourselves as, as identified with our roles and with our belief about who we are. Now, obviously, as a baby, we didn't have all that, so who were we then, right? There's some timeless aspect of us that we lose touch with when when that happens. So at stage six, we're pretty much what I call frame lock, completely locked into a limited frame of reference based on beliefs that have been socialized into us. The next six stages of that journey involve unlearning everything that we learn on the way up that mountain so that we can remember who we are, right? And so there's, we're almost like recovering our natural state again, but this time we're doing it consciously, you know, as a full-grown adult. So, yes, uh, getting frame-locked by our ego uh, is really a big part of being a human. It's like this amazing journey where we go up, down this mountain, and we end up where we started again, but we know it for the first time. That's what we found with voice code which is pretty awesome, right? It starts mm-hmm. to make sense of a lot of these, you know, anomalies of, of, of uh, history, you know, these spiritual and social leaders like Gandhi, who just seem larger than life. Through this framework, what we see is that they were just like us. It's just that they unlearned a lot of that ego identification, and they began to really be happy, and they were able to sort of stand for stuff without fear, and they began to really be great. You know, you have to be happy to be great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how are you happy? You have to know who you are, self-knowledge. Um, and that's what I call our voice. You know, so what I, you know, the voice code is really about us finding our voice. There's a part of us which remains undamaged and, you know, un, it's like the sun. It's hidden behind the clouds of our beliefs. And when we find it, though, we kind of we kind of go through that cloud cover and remember that sunny, inner, happy nature of ours, our voice. And, uh, and then we end up leading others forward towards happiness and everything really works out well. But we have to get to that stage where we're ready to question um, who we think we are so that we can remember who we actually are. Yeah. And that's when happiness starts to grow beyond bounds. You know, it's funny because it, it brings back this story that I heard where, uh, you know, any child, any six year old could tell you that things like um, income inequality and climate change and what we're doing to the planet are wrong because it's very obvious and, and, and what we're doing. It's very easy to see what we're doing to, say, mess up the planet. They say it takes a lifetime of education at the best schools and learning in business to unlearn those fundamentals and and make it into an intractable problem. It's getting back to, you know, guys, you know, you, you, you pollute, it makes bad things happen. And then it takes a person in a, in a, in a suit with a very serious expression to try and rationalize that away. Uh, but yeah, if you just look at it like a kid would and happiness, I guess is the same way, you know, we start off just having a green field and a playground and we're super happy with that. And we're happy with our friends and we're happy with our family and, and then it takes a lifetime of learning to make us unhappy. And then what you're saying is that, uh, you know, what you're working on right now is getting people to realize that and then t- take these steps backwards away from that unhappy state to rediscover 
what they already had inside them. Yes, it, it reminds me of the, was the poet, I believe, was it T.S. Eliot, um, says, you know, we'll never cease exploring, and at the end of our exploring, we'll be to arrive at the place from which we started and know it for the first time. Oh, that's, that's really <laughs> There's nice. this, this circular journey that we're all on, and, and as I understand, this is the human journey. What's really interesting about it is that we're at such an inflection point of history. You know, I really believe in capitalism, actually, to be honest with you. I don't know if that makes me popular with some people in my audience, you know, so, uh, but I really believe in capitalism. I just think we're moving into its grand phase. I think what we're moving out of was a phase which is kind of like, you know, the Wright Brothers plane of capitalism, you know, where we were, you know, so enamored with the idea of profits and stuff that we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. right, and the baby being our happiness. But I think that that set us up just perfectly to now shift, you know, and the changes in technology to shift into this new phase where, um, you know, the, the happiness and money and currency and meaning and all this flows together as part of a whole. You know, because the word, I believe, happiness actually roots back as a similar root to the word whole, mm-hmm. right? Happy, whole. You know, we can't be happy when we're compromising our inner, you know, uh, happy self for, for external success. But nor can we be happy if we have uh, you know, if we're just focusing on our inner navel, you know, and all this stuff, and we're not taking care of business on the outside. It's really, I think, about dissolving uh, the, the perceived separation between inner and outer. I think that's what happiness is, is feeling one with our environment, with the work we do, uh, with the people around us and our relationships, and with the world as a whole. We want to feel like we're making a difference, right? Mm-hmm. But we want to feel acknowledged as well. There's all these compromises uh, that slipped into our mental programs, and we believe we're healthy on the way up. We were taught to sacrifice some things for other things, right? To sacrifice mm-hmm. our autonomy so that we can have relationships, to, to sacrifice our secure, you know, uh, change and our passion so that we could have security. Mm-hmm. And that w- ultimately, it's those sacrifices that become institutionalized into our ego structure, right, that uh, make us unhappy because it's, it's not natural to compromise. Mm-hmm. I think we're living now mm-hmm. into an economy in which compromise is fatal. We have to really stand for what our passions are and bring it to the world with an uncompromising tenacity of a warrior. And I think those of us who are willing to shift thinking and learn that skill, uh, all bets are off. You know, we can thrive and help thrive. And that's happening all around us. The trick, I think, is, is, is developing the courage to stand for that inner knowing. When we've been taught all along that we're not an expert and that we should follow the authorities, it's a little bit tricky to uh, really stand for our own inner authority to choose what's true for us. So that takes some practice, and, and, and that's really what my new book's about. So right. I'm hoping to help that process right. along. So now that that's a great shifting point, though, because, uh, you know, there are some brands out there that I think are taking the next step. And I always go to Nike and you were talking about Apple and Google. Um, but uh, Nike, to me, I think has has uh, has had a glimmer of insight because they've gone from just do it and buy our stuff. And if you have our stuff with its fluorescent colors, you'll be cool to find your greatness. And their whole positioning is that you're already great. You've already got everything you need. We just want to come along for the ride. And uh, give me your thoughts on that. Is that sustainable? Is that a good strategy for a future-proof brand wanting to bring happiness back to people and not try to sell them unhappiness? Yeah, I think that I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. Definitely, I think though, we it's it, the interesting thing, a, a distinction that people don't often make would be I would make that's important to get if we really want to pull this off. Though, is we have to get that happiness isn't an emotion; it's a state of being. Right. So 
so we can be happy, but um, emotions can run through us, the whole spectrum of emotions from, you know, sadness to, uh, you know, it's, to, to grief to anger, right? The, all those emotions can come and go. Happiness is a state where we're not so identified that we're afraid of our own emotions, so we kind of let them pass through us. But it is a state of being. And so when we start talking about being, we get into territory that's very confusing to our brain because our brain likes concepts, but it so often confuses the map with the territory of experience experience, right? Yeah. So like the word happy. So if I tell you, yeah, do your thing, find your voice, right? Mm-hmm. And I do that from a state of being where I'm ultimately wanting to get something from you. I'm basically trying to manipulate you with the words, be happy, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to feel that and you're going to feel manipulated no matter what I say. So um, what I'm saying is, is it's a real challenge is that the first step is that we have to be happy ourselves. We have to really be authentic, mm-hmm. right? And then when we get that, we have to find ways to engage customers to do the same thing through our products, through our value proposition, right? So like with Worldview Thinking, ours is pretty simple because, you know, this is what we do, right? So we literally help people find their voice, right? And, and so we're literally like offering a technology to help people do that. But other people need to do it. You know, when, if, you're, if you're a shoe company like Nike, right, they, that makes sense. They seem authentic with it, right, that yeah. they really do care. And, you know, and they're getting you to take action and to better yourself. So it kind of works. But I think every brand has its own value proposition. And I think the trick is that, you know, it be authentic and it be coming from a space of truly wanting to give rather than trying to manipulate people with the next great messaging strategy. You know, it's, uh, it, it, you just, you're hitting on something super powerful. The, the, uh, you touched on this. I want to underline this. Um, you touched on this idea that if I am happy, I am in a state I am not in an emotion. And so you see all these people running around in Los Angeles yelling about how unhappy they are, how unhappy they are. And they, no matter how much they spend on psychiatrists, they just can't get happy. But happiness, as you say, and I agree, is a state that can, that can you can have happiness, sadness, anxiety running through that state. But you come back to a natural state going, I have what I need. It's almost like it, it's the wrong word. It's the natural state. It's equilibrium where everything is in balance, a state of balance. And, and what um, companies do, and I think Nike's as bad as the, at this as everybody else, uh, they throw us into a state of imbalance where they go, you know, you don't really have everything that you need. You need this new running shoe, otherwise your ankles are going to be crap. And, and uh, you know, that way you can go back to your state of natural happiness. Um, I think there, there's, there's a ton of room for, for brands to look at uh, you know, assume that people uh, are trying to get back to a state of natural equilibrium where everything is in balance, the world is in order, and all you're trying to do is just help them make their lives a little bit easier. Uh, but don't tell them that they'll be uh, lesser people if they don't get it. And you know what this brings me to? It just it just hit on me like a little uh, sunburst. Is the old Volkswagen ads from the 1950s where they positioned their car as as humble and meek and mild and nothing really special. And if you just need to get to a neat place and you like something reliable, well, this might be the car for you. And it was like getting a sales pitch from, from, your, country, from your country cousin, somebody who is plain spoken and, and just want to tell you the facts. And I, I wonder if that was, uh, you know, sort of a, something that was moving so far in the right. And it was a hu- hugely popular campaign. And then we just marched right past it and started to build more unhappiness into our sales pitches. Thoughts on that? Uh, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I, I think that, 
that was, that's a great campaign. And, you know, you look at uh, Apple's Think Different, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or you, you, you know, and then you look at like Google with their weirdness, you know, they're owning their weird, so mm-hmm. to speak. And you can see, you can see how uh, Bill Birnbach, the DDB founder, right? I mean, he was on fire. That was a beautiful campaign. But then it was so authentic. I mean, look, just to get back to the VW bug, I mean, you have this really awesomely weird, innovative, you know, thing that breaks all conventions, right? And mm-hmm. then a beautiful campaign that really distilled that brand essence and brought it to people in a simple, uh, you know, humble, relatable way, right? Like, I remember one of the ads had a picture of it, and it said lemon on mm-hmm. it, right? Like, the one thing a car shouldn't be, right? Lemon. And it just says lemon right on the ad. That's the only, <laughs> like, yeah. word on the ad. I, I, it's just great. It, it, it breaks the frame, see? It breaks the frame. I think, though, you know, to do to do a campaign like that, like, you can't do a campaign like that for a stupid product, yeah. you know what I mean? That 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 doesn't need to exist. <laughs> well, that, that, and that brings us you know right I mean? to the core of it. You know, all of us need to make stuff to make money, or at least we think we do. And and so we we end up. Uh, you know, I love this working in tech. I work in tech a lot now, and what I talk about all the time with these guys who are launching new product is: is this just a solution in search of a problem? Are you just creating stuff in order to tell people that they've got a new problem they didn't know existed before? It's, it goes right back to scope, inventing bad breath, halitosis as a medical condition. You know, are you inventing problems just to just to plug in your solution? As opposed to the Volkswagen, you go, you need to get from A to B without any fuss, without any muss, without much money. And, you know, uh, that it solved a perfectly viable problem. I think maybe what we're doing right now is... We're so crowded in the marketplace that we're going around inventing solutions for problems that don't exist and trying to make people insecure because of it. Um, I definitely would say that that's a game that most people are playing, and I and I think that you know, what I would I would back up for a minute and I would question the whole problem frame because mm-hmm. I, th- I mean if life is a problem if we're always solving problems right and that's what we're here to do and we derive our sense of self worth from having problems to solve right uh, we're basically always living in the future right looking for problems we're training our mind to see what's wrong and I, and that's one of the chief reasons that we're not happy so i think i think it's really it's uh, what was it abraham maslow the great psychologist said that um to someone with only a hammer all problems look like nails mm mm-hmm. mhm Right. Yeah. So, uh, so to, to someone with only problem, right? You know, with only a problem, all situations look like an opportunity to see what's not working. Yeah. Right. So that's the chief. That's the real problem. See, oh, we, wow. the problem is that we're addicted to believing in problems, and I think that the people who are happy and who are thriving in this new economy are those who are creating solutions that reframe old problems so that they simply disappear. Right, like instead of worrying about how to compete with the next guy, they're looking inside to, to what really inspires them, and they're putting connecting the dots with what the world needs, and they're innovating solutions that reframe reality for others and empower them, but not by you know fostering the belief that they're weak and that they they're they're needy, right, and that they need their solution. It's really uh, about empowerment by, uh, in a sense, smashing the old frames and uh, you know creating a new solution that renders the old models obsolete. Uh, to quote Buckminster Fuller, that's what it's all about. Uh, but it, but you can't do that, you know, if you're frame locked, right? Yeah. You can't do that if you if you bought into the fact that you need uh, that you know the endorsement of every, the approval of everyone around you in order to before you can follow you and you have to you know like know have all the answers before you can follow your passion and trust mm-hmm. yourself inside. Well, that's the problem. 
So, so okay, so that takes me, is it even possible for brands to live in a world that we're trying to create? If we're trying to create a world of a natural state where we're going, you know, let's not look to the future, constantly looking for problems to solve. Let's try to get ourselves off that hamster wheel. And is it possible for brands to even exist in a, in a world like that? Or is it just, are they just going to become like the old general store? Well, I need a pound of lard and some nails. Don't care what brand they are. You know, there is no brand. <laughs> is it possible for brands to exist, or well, are they just going to go away? Uh, I, I definitely think it's possible for brands to exist. I think they just um, our thinking has to shift, right? Mm-hmm. What is a brand? I mean, you know, brands have existed since I mean, since the first cavemen started write, you know, writing mm-hmm. uh, symbols on a cave wall. You know, it's it's about a symbolic representation of a truth, right? An essence that is shared, a shared truth. Mm-hmm. Because you know, so so ultimately, uh, our brands will continue to exist, especially those who stand for something. Right, that matters to other people, right. and who are you know coming from that spirit, uh, and I think people will always need that because we we really need truths that bind. I I still think brands you know are are serving the role that religion used to play, and for a lot of people, you know what I mean. They're they're representing these aspirational truths, mm-hmm. and as long as they do that, I think they're going to thrive because you know uh, people don't know what to believe today. They they want to feel alive. They want to feel something, and brands that can make people feel and call out their better angels. Yeah, they're going to thrive. But the brands who are faking it and trying to phone it in and trying to manipulate, well, obviously, it's not going to go so well for them. So what you're saying is is uh, there's there's very much a role for a brand that is driven by a human. I, I keep going back to Patagonia. Uh, driven by a guy who says, my whole purpose in life is to get outside and enjoy nature and preserve nature for others and, and make the world a better place. And, oh, by the way, if you want to buy my stuff, that's great. It's really good stuff. People are flocking to brands like Patagonia because they hear a real story of a person who already deep, seems to have a deep-seated sense of natural state and happiness, and they want a piece of that. So that's probably where it's going to go. Yeah, that's definitely where it's going to go. And if anybody listening is, you know, working in one of and I've been in those big brands, Fortune 100 brands, maybe they get a little cynical at times. You know, mm-hmm. I've hung out with a lot of account planners, and it, it can be a little bit of a tough crowd. You know, uh, ble- bleeding open hearts don't always do well at the account planning conferences mm-hmm. that, I've, that I've spoken at. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it can be a very cynical world, the marketing world. Let me just say I understand that, and I understand the challenges of trying to get, a, you know, a good idea through the rigmarole of approvals of all the managers and stuff. You want to even do something simple like repackaging tomato cans, mm-hmm. it could be a, a constant headache. So, you know, so the idea of, of what I'm talking about might seem really uh, overwhelming to someone trapped in that world. But I just want to remind I mean, if, if you're in a company that is big and global, right? I mean, it wouldn't be there if there wasn't some heart, something at the core of it yeah. that's true and worthy, right? Yeah. There's something at the core of it. So, yeah, if it's a new aspirational brand, you know, like Patrick, you know, somewhere where there's like a, a figurehead who stands for something and it's baked into the cake, you know, and they're just on the – that's easier than, than being in a big brand that has to turn it around. But just understand the big brands can do it too. It's just a matter of uh, shifting thinking. And standing for something, right? Um, right? And when we shift thinking, find out what we stand for, and remember that that you know, as a brand, uh, then then we can thrive in this in this new world. The trick is is learning to follow that inner truth. When everyone around you is afraid to be weird, you got to be willing to be the weird one and know that they're going to laugh at you. But I, 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 as a final quote, I would just quote Gandhi. You said, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, and then you win. Yeah, uh, and that is the scientific truth, right? Yeah. So the real call is for us each to own our weird, 
And if you're in a big brand, own your weird, and you will succeed. You know, uh, I think that there's a real – it's what the market is demanding. So the truth is nothing else will succeed. Uh, so the writing's kind of on the wall. I think the whole trick is to we just got to own our weird. A message of hope and counterintuitive intelligence. That is what we're going to end on. John, thank you so much. Now, I want to I wanna make sure that everybody picks up your book. And it's not released yet, but they should definitely get on the waiting list. How do they do that? Uh, go to worldviewthinking.com and sign up there. And, uh, yeah, the official uh, – looks like the official launch date is going to be um, uh, July 25th at the latest, which will be the fourth anniversary of the day I cracked the code. And, boy, am I happy to have this book writing process done. And I can't wait to share it with you all. So, please, if you, if you like the weird that I'm talking, uh, go sign up, and then I'll send you more. John, uh, thank you again. Thank you so much for thank coming Thank you, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. If you want to get a hold of me, drop me an email at mark, M-A-R-C, at markstoiber.com, M-A-R-C-S-T-E.